We are not, uh, we're not done. We're just getting started. So, uh, my name's Nick. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, after the service, I hang out. I'd love to hang out with you. So, please stop by and, and say hi. We can uh, open up our Bibles uh, to Psalm 117. We've been in the Psalms. This is, I believe, going to be the last Sunday um, that we're there before we, we get into Luke. Uh, Luke's Gospel, I believe, will be uh, launching next week, God willing. So, Psalm 117, if you don't have a Bible, would you mind raising your hand and uh, the ushers will get you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep it. And if you promise to give it away to a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, whoever, you can also keep it. It's our uh, gift to you. I will say, um, one announcement uh, I, don't, I don't think Scott mentioned is, we are going to be meeting again tonight at my house for the uh, prayer meeting, first and third Sundays of the month, um, 6 o'clock to 7.30. Tonight, you, you, there's no AC at my house, okay? So I don't know if you've ever heard of like Bikram yoga or the hot yoga thing where everyone goes in and they sweat and they lose all these calories. This is going to be like hot prayer. This is going to be Bikram prayer tonight. So come in your, your, uh, your athletic gear and prepare to drop some calories with us as we pray fervently for the, uh, the church and for one another. Uh, I'd love to see you at 6 o'clock at my house if you... Um, need any, any directions, anything like that, uh, feel free to talk to me afterwards. Psalm 117. Let's read it. I'll pray and I'll, I'll get us in. Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's it. Let's pray. Two verses, Lord. But they encompass... the universe and your purpose for it. We probably read those two verses so fast that we didn't even catch their content. It was already over. But there's an eternity here, Lord. And I pray, God, that today through our time together, meditating, digging down into your word, that you would help us. Help us to see the story we are a part of. Help us to see your wild and crazy love. And help us, God, to have hearts that respond appropriately to a love that has no end. No condition. Help us to respond, God, with praise. Thanksgiving, rejoicing. That we could be counted among the number that would be yours forever. I need your help, God. I pray that you would give me your words, your strength. And I pray that you'd give everyone here ears to hear, hearts to feel. We need you to be at work in these moments. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Somehow I always end up back off from the the pulpit by the time I'm done praying. I don't know how that happens. All right. I want to ask a question to begin here. How, um, How big is your God? How wild is He? How free? Is your God someone or a a God that you can domesticate to kind of fit nicely into your life? 
Is your God a God that you can tame to kind of sit politely with you while you sip your coffee and do your morning devotions? He's just kind of this nice little comfort in this little section of your life or this little part of your day or to borrow from last week's message. Is God, is your God, a God that you can kind of relegate Sundays to, but keep them separate from your Mondays? You can talk to me on on Sunday, Lord. This is for you. That's why we're here. All right, two hours. It's yours. Yes, but don't you tell me what to do on Monday. That's my time. That's my kid. (laughs) Is your God more like a household deity? A tribal deity? Or is He the God of the universe? Remember His name? Yahweh. I am who I am. Wild and free. Cannot be contained. Have you invited Him to play a supporting role in your story? Or has He invited you into the rush of His story? This psalm is an invitation into His story. It's an invitation into His wild and crazy story. He's saying, get in here, every one of you. I want you all to be a part of this. It's amazing, things are not always what they seem. Because we're actually looking at the smallest psalm in the Psalter, right? Two verses. Smallest psalm in the hymn book of Israel, and yet it has the largest reach. <laughs> Too loud. He's, he's giving me the sign. Oh, okay. <laughs> it has the largest reach. We might be tempted to think it's the quietest. Two verses and then it's done. We barely even got into it and it's over. And yet, it has the loudest chorus in view. The universal church erupting in praise. That's what these two verses are about. We might think it's the tamest of the Psalms. Constrained and nicely put. Two little verses, but it's actually the wildest running free. God's love in this psalm is shown to be so wild, so wide, so all-encompassing that we actually might be a little uneasy with it. In fact, I want us to be a little uneasy with it by the time we're done. Whoa! His love is that big. And He's calling me into that. Now, you, I imagine, might be saying, uh, where are you getting all this? <laughs> wild and free and crazy. Nick, you're the only one that seems wild and crazy and free. I'm not seeing how this is connected to the text. What are you talking about? Let me tell you something. I am getting this from those two plural nouns in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. I've been enchanted by those plural nouns for a few weeks now. In fact, I started our worship service if you were here at the beginning, which today you guys were here. And maybe that's just Communion Sunday and you know the rhythm. But I was happy to, to see all you here. But anyways, before, a, uh, wor- before the worship service began a few weeks ago, I started with this because I've just been so enchanted by the plural nouns, nations, peoples. We might be in the Old Testament here in Psalm 117, but we're not just talking about Israel. We're talking about all nations, all peoples. We're talking about Jew and Gentile, 
We're talking about Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Greek, Roman, American, Mexican, African, European, Asian. Everyone, everywhere is in this psalm. All nations, all peoples, praising the Lord. That, in my estimation, is a wild, wide, free, unstoppable kind of love. As a side note, I wonder how much weight you give to the grammar of Scripture. If you even notice some of these things, we just kind of pass over them, but I want you to realize we are there in these plurals. These plural nouns, that's us. That's you. That's me. That's my salvation. That's your salvation. That's us being welcomed into the story of God. We are there in those plurals. Grammar matters, my friends. <laughs> How closely do we read our Bibles? This morning, as we consider the psalm together, I have uh, two headings for us. First, and we're going to spend the great majority of our time here, a love as wide as the world. Second, a joy as high as the heavens. Okay, that's it. So, some might be, well, let me get in here, uh, a love as wide as the world. Uh, I imagine that some still are kind of wondering if I'm getting ahead of myself here. We have to ask, what is this praise that all the nations and peoples are being called into? Is it... Is it kind of this, this, this idea that we get later on in the Gospels where every, every uh, knee or every knee will bow and every tongue confess? Is that the kind of praise we're talking about? The praise that will happen uh, for Jesus even from His enemies? Where even though they don't find Him glorious, they have to say He is Lord. Is this a twisting of the arm kind of praise? Uh, well, one day everyone's going to see Yahweh is the true God. And they will give Him the glory due His name. Is that the kind of praise that all the nations and all the peoples are giving here? Something they're forced into? I don't think so. I don't think so. The logic of our text pushes us in another direction. Look at this. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For... For... There's the logic word. We're praising Him. Why? Because... For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Let me point out two things. With the for being in there, it shows us that His love and faithfulness are the basis of this praise. In other words, it's a praise not from, from obligation or force. It's a praise from delight. The nations and peoples are receiving this steadfast love, receiving the, the, the glory and the wonder of this faithfulness, and its response is delight and praise. And you see the us there as well. For, his, for great is His steadfast love toward us. So it would seem to me that the two plural nouns in verse 1 nations, peoples, find their way into this plural pronoun in verse 2. It's too much grammar for you, I know. But it's important. Us. In other words, this steadfast love, this faithfulness, not just for Israel here, but for everyone, everywhere. Us. And that's where things start to get crazy in my book. That's where things start to get wild. That's where eyebrows start to ray. Whoa, are you serious? That's where Israel goes, what did we just sing? All nations ever the faithfulness for everyone? What is this? It gets crazy because we consider the backstory of these two words. Steadfast love, I realize it's two in the English, but it's one in the Hebrew. It's chesed. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Not going to... Go into detail on that this morning. But steadfast love and faithfulness. 
when we consider the backstory, we see how intricately tied it is to Israel's story. Okay, let me show you. The first time the Lord takes both of these words together upon his lips, steadfast love, faithfulness, at least as far as I could tell in the scriptures, is in Exodus 34, verse 6. You probably know it. And this declaration of God that happens in Exodus 34, verse 6, is reflected upon throughout the rest of the canon of Scripture. But let me, let me set the stage for you here. God has just brought Israel out from Egypt. The Exodus, right? By the Passover lamb. He led them to Mount Sinai, where He enters into covenant with them. And they enter into covenant with Him as well. Remember what they say at the base of that mountain. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How tragic that is. Because Moses goes up from there to receive the two tablets of the covenant. Right? The Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone. But by the time he comes back down, what does he find? Covenant infidelity on behalf of Israel. Remember the golden calf incident? Just a replay of what happened with Adam and Eve where they fall to the the serpent, the creature that they are supposed to have dominion over. Well, now we have Israel here worshiping the image of a creature, a cow, an animal. We're supposed to reign over these animals. We're worshiping them. Something's wrong here. Covenant infidelity. Moses gets down from the mountain, sees this going on, throws the tablets of stone against the mountain, it says. Oh, that's a crazy image. Against Mount Sinai. Shatters. And God Himself threatens to depart, to leave Israel to themselves, lest He consume them by His holiness. Right? Moses, at this point, and many other points, but this one now, intercedes. And what does he say? What does he say? He says, Show me now your ways. Exodus 33:13. And later, show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. Show me your glory. In other words, don't leave us. If you don't go with us, We will not make it. So what does God do? All right. Cut two more stones out and we'll redo this whole process. God is not giving up on them. And then Moses goes up to the top of the mountain now with these two new stones, stone tablets. And this is where he shows Moses his glory, at least as much as Moses could handle. You can see my back, he says. And this is what this is what he does. Exodus thirty four, five through eight. Now we're going to see here these two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, show up, and they become the, the subject of reflection from this point forward in, in Israel and in our history. Exodus thirty four, verse five. The Lord descended on the cloud, or in the cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is my glory. I'm declaring it to you. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There they are. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That seems like a contradiction. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses responds like anyone should. He quickly bows his head toward the earth and worships this God. So much we could say about this. Just have a couple things. This self-declaration of God's glory His name, His character, or His goodness, like He says earlier, becomes Israel's hope. Right? In this declaration, we see that God is both holy, righteous, and just. 
but that He is also merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is hope for covenant infidelity in this God. And what's amazing, if we look closely, we get this strange sense that there is a wonderful imbalance in this God. That the center of gravity in His attributes leans towards grace and mercy. So yeah, I'm getting that. Why would He say, I show steadfast love for thousands. I keep it for thousands. And in actually Deuteronomy let me, 7.9, Deuteronomy 7.9, it actually says, for to the thousandth generation. Okay? Keeping steadfast love for thousand generations. But, but, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Thousands of generations, grace, mercy, love, three and four. Okay, I'll punish sin. I'll vindicate my holiness in that way. There is this wonderful imbalance in the character of God that leans towards grace and mercy. You ever wonder why Ezekiel the prophet, God tells us this. He says, I don't, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. Just raw justice. I don't delight in that. What I delight in is when a sinner turns from his way. That, I just, it just lights me up. That's the heart of our Father. Abounding love. That's what I want to show. Remember those parables in Luke 15? All of them are pointing us towards this reality where there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Remember this? Just give me one sinner who repents and heaven erupts with praise. That's the heart of our Father. We see it in this text. Already, we start to see that this mercy and grace, this love, steadfast love and faithfulness, could not possibly be spent on a single nation, the nation of Israel. Even back at the beginning, it was threatening to just break out and envelop the world. But, nonetheless, in the context, God's commitment to Israel is in view. His commitment to Israel. This is Him calling Israel out from the nations. That's what's going on here. That's what the Exodus is. I'm calling you out from all these other nations. You're the ones. And He's declaring His character, but also His commitment and covenant with them. When He says, this is who I am. This is who I will be for you. So the question we have to ask is, how in the world does our psalmist take these words, these, 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 these uh, theologically charged, covenantally charged words, and apply them to all nations and all peoples? How does he take steadfast love and faithfulness and apply it to the heathen nations? Is the psalmist unorthodox? How did this psalm slip in to the Psalter? Now, this leads us to ask a most significant question. Who is the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord for? Another way we could phrase it, what was the point of Israel? What was the point? of reflections on this, but I'll cut straight to the point by quoting one scholar who I think does a good job of explaining it. He says this, the whole purpose of God in choosing Israel was so that the nations would eventually do so. Did you hear that? The overall thrust of the Old Testament is not Israel against the nations, but Israel for the sake of 
of the nations. Israel is set apart from the nations with the goal of bringing in the nations. This is Israel's mission. This is the point of Israel. Set apart from the nations with the goal of bringing in the nations. This is a being set apart that we might not immediately understand. We think kind of like Israel. Oh, set apart means something special. And we actually spend a lot of our energy in the flesh trying to set ourselves apart, right? Not for the sake of inclusion, but for the sake of exclusion, right? If I have this set of skills or this level of training or whatever it might be, well, then when I go in for the job interview, I will be set apart. The others won't be able to match up to what I have. This is kind of the world's view of sanctification. It's what a lot of us labor for. And it's not the kind of being set apart or sanctification of of, of the kingdom of God. When God sets apart Israel, or us, the church, He does it with a view to the inclusion of more. He does it with a view of getting more inside, not with keeping more out. It's unlike anything we can understand in the flesh. And it's amazing. And now, it might be memorable, might be memorable, to see this psalm as depicting Israel in poetic form. Stick with me, stick with me. This psalm is kind of a picture of Israel's purpose in the form of poetry here. What is this psalm? But two little verses, right? The smallest in all the Psalter, and yet, what? It has the largest reach. It's going after the the universal history here, and all nations, all peoples. This little tiny psalm, everyone, everywhere, right? Well, what was Israel? Littlest, fewest, we're told, Deuteronomy. Fewest of all the peoples, little Israel. Chosen, why? With a view to the whole, all nations. God was attempting to go after through this nation. I give that to you if it's helpful. If it's helpful, so be it. If it's not, <laughs> that's fine. Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament takes up so much space in your Bible? I mean, have you looked? It's it's not it's not fair. The New Testament, the good stuff, right? It only gets you get this last end little part, and all that's this old thing. You don't even know what to do with it, right? Most of us. Most of us, we, we, get, we open the Old Testament, we get confused, we think it's about Israel and God's mission with them, and that goes awry, and then finally, New Testament, something gets relevant to my life. He has a mission for me now, and I can see it going, all right, no, that's, that's not it. It's not it. His mission has been the same from the very beginning. Steadfast love, faithfulness for all nations, all peoples. Even as he's developing this one nation, he's coming after all of us. I'm telling you, you might already be able to tell, but by the way I preach, my hope is to set your Old Testaments on fire. Those dusty Old Testaments. Oh, what is going on? I want to set it on fire. So that you see Christ on every page of this scripture. You see your hope, your joy, your glory there. Even in Leviticus. Wherever it might be. That's what you said. That's reaching. (laughs) I know. It's not easy. So I want to show you now how the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord, while for Israel, is also and especially for the world. And it has been so from the beginning of redemptive history through the middle of it to the very eternal, climactic end of it. See how I can do with the time I have remaining. So let's start with the uh, steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord for all peoples, all nations from the very beginning. I want to go to the backstory, even behind Exodus 34, 6, behind where God declares steadfast love and faithfulness. There's something behind that in the story of Israel. You remember how Exodus even begins, how this whole uh, decision that God was going to come down and redeem this people took place. Exodus 2, 23 and 34 says this, the people, they're in slavery at this point in Egypt, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with, first on the list, Abraham. This whole thing with Moses, this whole thing with Israel coming out in the Exodus, it's rooted, it has historical precedent in Abraham. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, so he does this with Israel. Well, what's going on with Abraham? Let's go there. You remember what God says to Abraham, maybe when he first calls him. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Go from your country, God says, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And the verse 3 ends, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, father of Israel, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make a nation from you. But the point of this nation is to be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to mediate blessing through you. This promise is refined even further in Genesis 22:18, where God tells him, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth Be blessed. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There is a seed who's coming. Paul would refer to this, these these texts like these, we're not sure exactly which one he's referring to. Paul would refer to these texts as God preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. God is preaching the gospel to Abraham here as he's saying, I'm going to mediate through you blessing to the nations. And, and, and Paul even goes so far as to say this. He's preaching to Abraham that he would justify the Gentiles by faith. This is Galatians 3.8. The message coming out of God's mouth at this point is the Gentiles are going to be justified by faith. That's given to Abraham before the Exodus, before anything else. And their story One nation for all nations. We can keep going back. A lot of us might be familiar with Abraham. But I doubt, I doubt many of us are that familiar with uh, where even the promise to Abraham kind of grows out of. There's this uh, scenario with Noah. I won't go into all the gory details. But there's this incident that happens with him. And he... um, declares kind of these the destinies or gives these oracles to his three sons. And there's this promise made to Shem that Abraham is following in line with, okay? And I want you to see this. The promise to Abraham is growing out of a promise made to Shem. So what we have, Genesis 9 here, you have first Noah curses Canaan. Interesting. We won't go into details. The son of Ham. Okay, But then he turns to his other two sons and gives a blessing. And this is what he says, Genesis 9, 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. That's his other son, Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem of Shem. Bless Shem, let him take Canaan. Now let's bless Jepheth and let him come and dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. Now, what is the point? You're going, what is going on? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Abraham comes from Shem. If you keep reading, and the the writer Moses of, of Genesis is trying to zero in on this for us. Focuses in Shem's lineage. In Shem's line, but Abraham, the father of Israel, to whom is given what? The land of Canaan. Jepheth becomes the father in his line. All these people go and settle in Europe and Asia Minor. Gentiles. 
Gentiles. Now, you've got the line of Abraham going forward and the Messianic seed coming in that line, right? But then what happens when you get to Paul? This is crazy. This is awesome. When I, I just did a little map kind of study. as uh, Where was Paul's missionary? Where, where was he going? You want to know where he went? Asia Minor and Europe. That's, that's missionary journey number one, two, and three. He's going to bring in to the tents of Shem, the offspring of Abraham, the people of Jephthah. So even before Abraham, before Moses, before Abraham, God was already moving. He was already saying, I'm going to be bringing in the nations. That is what I want to do. I want to bring them into this blessing. I'm not leaving them out. Don't you think when I set apart Israel, I'm forgetting about you. I set apart Israel for you. And of course, we could go back one step further to Genesis 3.15, which you know theologians refer to as the first gospel proclamation. It's where the promise is given of an offspring who would come and overturn the works of the devil, right? And this is the big point. This is the big point. Who was that promise made to? Who's the very first gospel promise made to? Adam and Eve. And who were they the father of? Who were they the parents of, I should say? Not one nation, not one people, not one tribe, but everyone, everywhere. In other words, in other words, from the very beginning, the gospel, God's steadfast love and faithfulness has been relevant, not just for this little tribe, and then finally it becomes relevant for us later. It has been relevant from the very beginning to everyone, everywhere, because everyone came from this first couple. He's coming after the world with this promised seed. <laughs> you and that. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Anyway. So, the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord was certainly for Israel, but it was also for all nations and all peoples from the beginning. What we see in Exodus 34 then, what we see in Exodus 34 is just the early buds on the branches of this tree. It's the first growth of this larger, grander program. Okay, What begins is just the first few buds there with Israel becomes a universe in bloom by the time we get to the end of this story. All nations, all peoples praising the Lord. Now, I, I will do this. But I'll, I'll move fast from this point, I promise. I, I want to... I Drop in on Israel's story in the middle, okay? Because there are examples everywhere, and I won't, I won't, I won't uh, overwhelm you with them. You could go anywhere. Law, histories, Psalms, prophets. It's all there. It's all over. Nations. God, with His steadfast love, faithfulness, going for everyone. But I thought Jonah was an amazing example. It was an amazing example. In fact, we, the only reason it came to my mind is because we were reading about him with my kids, and I was like, oh my gosh. That's it. Because I want, I want you to understand Jonah's, Jonah's story. I don't, maybe you remember it, maybe you don't. He's called to go and, 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 and pronounce, declare God's judgment on the Assyrian nation, Gentile nation, um, in particular the city of Nineveh. He's called to go to these people whose evil, it says, is, 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 is overwhelming. And he's called to declare judgment. And Jonah does not want to go. Right? You can understand that. He doesn't want to go. No way. He rebels. But God puts him in the belly of a fish, spits him out, and says, You will go. Okay. All right. I'm going. <laughs> three days, three nights. Belly of the fish. And you have to ask yourself, why doesn't Jonah want to go? Why didn't he want to go to clear judgment on this, this strong... Exceedingly great, we're told. Nation, city, you would think fear. You would think. That's why I would not want to go. 
I'd be worried that they were going to come back at me when I said, God's going to take you down. Okay, we're going to take you down. Thank you, little man. You know, it'd be over. But as we keep reading the story, Jonah gives his reason why he did not want to go. He gives his reason, and it is not what you would ever expect. When he declares judgment on the Ninevites, he says, listen, God's going to do this. And they repent, and God relents and shows mercy. Check this out in Jonah 4, verses 1 through 3. Jonah's looking at this repentance. He's looking at the mercy God's showing to them. And he says, it says this, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's Exodus 34. I knew this of you. You're full of love. That's why I didn't want to go. And relenting from disaster, he says, therefore now, take my life. It's better for me to die than live. We're given his answer. He didn't want to go because he knew God's love is so wild and so wide that it could even encompass a Gentile nation that he wanted nothing to do with. I know you're gracious. I know you're merciful. I know there's an imbalance in you and you delight to show mercy for no other reason than just to get glory and to see people delight in you. And I didn't want them on the inside. I didn't want them on my team. I didn't want to see them recipients of your mercy. What is this book doing in the canon? What is God trying to tell us by putting this book in the canon? I mean, Israel is for everyone. And He's trying to prepare us. He's trying to prepare us for the Messiah. Same thing all those promises were doing in Genesis. The whole point of Abraham, the whole point of the Exodus, the whole point of redemptive history, Israel, all the prophets, Jonah, was to prepare us, was to set the eyes of the world on the coming one. The one who would not get sidetracked with concern for his own glory, like Jonah or all Israel, for that matter. Sidetracked with concern for his own glory, but he would vindicate his fathers. The one who would not be troubled by the lavishness of God's grace, but would manifest it at every point. Especially for the outsider. Israel became ingrown, and you watch this happen through the course of the Scriptures. But Christ came to regain and fulfill her mission to the nations. He is the one who would give to the world the sign of Jonah. Luke eleven twenty nine. Remember this? I'm going to give you one sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. What is that? I'm going to go down into the grave three days, three nights. And I'm going to come out. And when I come out, repentance to the world will be granted. I'm going to call all nations to myself and people with hard hearts you would never believe they could be a part of my story will be coming in. Get ready. Jonah went into the belly for his own sin. Jesus goes down to the belly of the grave for my sin. He's God's ultimate answer to Moses' prayer. Show me your glory. Well, Paul says we seek God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. How in the world is God going to be gracious, merciful, show people love, forgive them, and yet also uphold justice? We see that right there in Exodus 34. That's his character. He is just and merciful. How is he going to hold those two things together? Answer, Jesus Christ 
punished for my sin, God is just. My sin, in my place, God is gracious. He is the steadfast love of the Lord incarnate. He's the one offspring of Abraham to whom the promises were ultimately made, we're told in Galatians 3.16. He is the offspring through whom all blessings would come. God was talking about Jesus. That's why we could call it the gospel being preached to Abraham beforehand. There's an offspring there. I'm looking at him. It's Christ. He's coming. And we are now the children of Abraham in him. He is the one who makes a way for Jephthah to come into the tents of Shem. He abolishes the dividing wall of hostility. Gentile Jew, come together. Engineer and artist, come together. American, Mexican, whatever it is, come together in Christ. And He is the promised seed who has overcome the works of the devil in sin. And we know that this history ends, this story ends with the one who has ransomed from the peoples of the earth men from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. And in the book of Revelation 7 9, we're shown they are singing praise to him. Let me ask you a question. We'll, we'll draw things too close. Are there boundaries? Are there boundaries in your relationship with God? Are you aware of how wild and free, how wide and overwhelming His love is? Or do you say, ah, this sin again, there is no way His grace can get me there. There is no way I could be covered. There's no way I could be accepted. I might be like the average Israelite, kind of out in the, you know, the outer banks of the temple, but no way am I one that gets invited into the Holy of Holies. His grace abounds even for you and me. He invites us into those plural nouns. You are there. I am there. All are welcome here. And I'll ask you, are there boundaries in your relationship with others? We're called into Israel's mission. We're called into God's mission, into the Messianic mission. When this love comes for us, He intends for it to move through us to all. And so the question is, is sometimes God's love a little too wild, a little too free for you? Meaning, not him. Not her. No, not kids club. I don't like kids. I don't want his steadfast love and faithfulness to move through me to them. Or my spouse, or whatever it might be. Are there boundaries? Are there limits? Do we get sidetracked from this mission with concern for our own glory? Or are we rejoicing in the lavishness of it? There is a welcome mat in front of the door of the gates or in front of the gates of heaven. Is there a welcome mat in front of my heart and outside of this church? You remember when Paul got saved and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, Saul, no! We don't want him around. Are you serious? I'm scared of this guy. He's been killing us. And Barnabas stands up and says, This is what the gospel does. It comes after the chief of sinners. comes after the worst. Let him come in. And they're glorifying God because of his mercy. And you and I are given hope because if he can be saved, why not me? And so we invite everyone in. And knowing this love, knowing this love for ourselves, knowing this love for one another, as we welcome one another. What's the response of God's people? When you think about His love for you, and you partake of that in this community, and you see it in His Word, what's the response? 
tell you the logic of our text and the simple application point that we end as we're about to sing. Second part of verse 2, for great is his steadfast love toward us and his faithfulness endures forever. Praise the Lord. And that just wraps around to the very first verse. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. Let's lift our voices. Let's give Him the praise. For His steadfast love and faithfulness is not just for Israel. It is for us in Christ. Amen? God, thank you. Thank you that you have found me. Thank you that there is no boundary that your love could not overcome. Thank you that you didn't look at me and choose me because my sin was only little, small, not so significant. Thank you that you chose me, that you showed grace to me even when my sin was exceedingly great. Thank you, Lord, that where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. God, I pray we would personally and corporately as a community celebrate that grace, know that grace, respond to that grace, giving thanks always, rejoicing always because of your steadfast love toward us. God, I'm praying that we would not be drawn away by lesser loves that promise a lot, but there's no steadfastness there. Make a good show, but there's no faithfulness there. God, it's your love that endures. And you keep us in Christ. We thank you for your love and we pray, God, we pray that it wouldn't just be something that makes us cry in our devotions, it would be something that makes us cry on the streets. Come, all who would come will be received by the Savior. His love, His faithfulness is for you. calling to us, Jesus, and you're sending us out. You're bringing us in and you're moving us on. Do that with us this week. We pray, Jesus, be glorified for your grace. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.